1989. Great, great. It was 1989, and uh, I was a sophomore in college. Okay, I was a sophomore in college. I was transferring to Hope College from Northwestern Michigan College in Traverse City. So I spent my first year of college um, kind of living at my parents' house, going to school in Traverse City, going home every weekend, you know, because there was a girl I was dating that I was very much in love with. So I'd go home every weekend this year. I really didn't have like a college experience. So I would say going to Hope College, transferring in as a sophomore, um, was my first, you know, kind of real college experience. My first time really being away from home, didn't know anybody at Hope College, had never been to Holland, Michigan before, but I uh, decided that Hope College is where I needed to go, and I hated it. I did not like my first real year of college. I, I don't know what it was. I don't know if, uh, if I was just homesick. I'm sure that was some of it. I mean, maybe a little bit lonely. Um, probably a lot of it was uh, I, w- I, w- I had broken up with that girl, and uh, I wasn't over her, and uh, I was trying to make it all work, and uh, it was just a bad year, and so much so that I was ready to transfer out of Hope College, and, in my, and maybe I've shared this story before, but in my second semester of my sophomore year, my first year at Hope College, living in Scott Hall, I met this guy. Um, he was one year ahead of me, so he would have been a junior. He was a soccer player at Hope College. I met a guy named Grant Scott. No one here probably knows who Grant Scott is, but Grant Scott came into my life. I can't even remember how we met, but he came into my life and befriended me and believed in me and invited me into his life and invited me into his, his group of friends and invited me into a, a ministry with Campus Crusade for Christ that, that he was helping begin on the campus of Hope College. And uh, when I look back, I didn't realize it at the time, but when I look back on my first year at Hope College, um, Grant Scott saved me. I mean, not, not literally, but, but sort of. Like, he, he saved me. Like, he believed in me. He invited me into his life. I, I would say he carried me. He carried me to Jesus in a way that I didn't know I was apart from Jesus. And he, he brought me, like, into a closer relationship with Jesus. And he discipled me. And I decided to stay at Hope College. And I'm so grateful I decided to stay at Hope College. Best next two years of my life, you know, at Hope College. And um, really was involved in community there. And I just want you to keep that idea, along with what Ruben was talking about, kind of keep those two ideas in your mind as we sort of move through the message this morning. Like, like who are the people in your life that have carried you during seasons? Who are the people that um, God has placed in your life? Um, maybe, you know, it's a spouse or a family member. Maybe it's a friend, a coworker. Maybe it's a stranger. Like, who is someone in your life that for a season in your life, when you didn't know how to move or couldn't move, like, carried you? They, they just, they came into your life and they carried you. Think about who that is. We're in the season of Lent, right? We're, we started the season of Lent this past Wednesday. Lent is this 40-day season between Ash Wednesday and Easter on the liturgical church calendar. It's actually 46 days, but the Sundays of Lent don't really count as days of Lent. Lent's often, you know, associated with some form of giving something up or fasting and or maybe adding something new to your life during that season. Maybe, uh, you know, a spiritual discipline or reading a daily devotion 
or working your way through like a Lenten prayer calendar maybe. Um, the, the purpose of Lent is, is simply to help prepare us and draw us closer to God, preparing us for Easter. Now, I acknowledge our faith tradition, the Reformed faith tradition, doesn't really observe the practice of Lent. We probably didn't grow up observing, you know, Lent as a season. Um, you know, it's probably something that's more practiced in the Roman Catholic, the Anglican, the Lutheran traditions. What we tend to do here at Victory Point is we tend to um, sort of center our Sunday gatherings, our, our Sunday teachings around something that help prepare us and lead us up towards the cross and resurrection on Easter Sunday. So here's what we decided to do this year uh, for our Lenten series. We're going to work our way through the Gospel of Mark. Through the Gospel of Mark, and we're calling this series Following the King. And what we'd like to do, and maybe you caught this you know, last week during the Family Time announcement or in the e-news, but in case you haven't heard, we're inviting everybody to join in on this journey through the Gospel of Mark. We, were, we would like everyone to read the entire Gospel of Mark during Lent. Um, and, and we're kind of breaking it down into little bite-sized sections. So, for instance, for this Sunday, hopefully you were able to read Mark chapters 1 and 2. Okay, we're just going to ask you to read maybe two chapters a week during Lent. Um, when we get towards Holy Week, there'll actually be four chapters just to make it all work and to arrive at Easter when we want to arrive at Easter, which is April 1. Um, so uh, we're asking you to read two chapters a week in the Gospel of Mark. Okay, and I would encourage you to, to read it even more than once, to just hang out in those two chapters. Maybe read those two chapters every day. At least read them once a week. If you do family devotions or you're sitting around at a dinner table, maybe read a portion of that. Just immerse yourself in the Gospel of Mark because we're going to journey through Mark following the king. Now let me tell you a little bit about the gospel of Mark. You know, some of this you may know, some of it you may not, but Mark obviously wasn't one of the 12 original disciples. Some believe that the author of the gospel of Mark is a guy named John Mark, who's a cousin of Barnabas that you read about in the book of Acts, who accompanied Paul, you know, on some of his missionary journeys, accompanied Paul and Barnabas on a few of their missionary journeys. Now, whether it was that particular Mark, John Mark, I think a strong case could be made that that's the author of the Gospel of Mark, or whether it's another Mark, um, what is believed that whoever the Mark is that wrote the Gospel of Mark, he was probably an assistant or a secretary to the Apostle Peter, who was one of the original 12 disciples, who, who was an actual eyewitness to Jesus. So what would happen, you know, the theory is, is that Peter would tell Mark stories, would tell stories of, of his journey with Jesus and his experiences with Jesus, his, uh, his encounters with Jesus, and what they did as they followed Jesus. Mark would write these down, and that's the content that we now have as the gospel of Mark, which really makes sense because Mark, more than any of the other gospels, mentions Peter most. So it's probably where Mark got his information is from Peter. Now, Mark... The, the author of the Gospel of Mark, he's writing to primarily a Roman audience, primarily Gentile Christians, probably living in Rome. You know, many people believe that Mark's Gospel, out of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that Mark's Gospel was probably the first to be written. So think about that. Mark's Gospel is probably the first written account we have of Jesus' life. 
The Gospel of Mark is the shortest of all the Gospels. Um, It covers about just three and a half years of Jesus' life. Mark focuses attention primarily on Jesus' public ministry, and he seems way more interested in the works of Jesus as opposed to the words of Jesus. So, for example, in the Gospel of Mark, you know, he records 18 of Jesus' miracles, but only four of Jesus' parables. I mean, Mark really is very action-packed. Mark, the Gospel, is all about Jesus on the move. I came across this quote in the commentary, which I thought was really good. It says this, The Gospel of Mark is a short, action-packed account, bustling with life and focused on Christ's ministry. As you study Mark, be ready. Be ready for nonstop action. Be open for God's move in your life. And be challenged to move into your world to serve. So with that invitation in mind, let me pray. Father, I pray that that what I just read becomes our experience in our journey through the gospel of Mark during Lent this year. Lord, may we be inspired by the actions of Jesus. May we be open to God's move in our life afresh today. And may it challenge us and propel us out of this place into the world with the good news of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right. So like I said, there's four Gospels. It's the first four books of the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew and Luke, if you're familiar, they begin their Gospels with baby Jesus. They begin their Gospels with the birth of Jesus. John, he begins his Gospel with big Jesus, with eternal Jesus. Mark begins his Gospel with adult Jesus about to begin his public ministry. And he begins with this verse. This is how the Gospel of Mark begins. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. Right out of the gate, Mark wants us to know who Jesus really is. And here's who he is. He's the Messiah, the Christ. He's the anointed one, the one who would come and rescue and deliver Israel and establish God's rule on earth. He's a king. And not just a king, right? Jesus is the king. Because he's also the son of God. So he's not just an earthly king, but he's a divine king. Christianity is it's not this... It's not an idea that we subscribe to. It's not like this set of beliefs that we just, you know, sign off on. Christianity is about following a person, a real living person who happens to be a king, the king, the king of the universe. And in this Lent series, we're going to be following the king. We're going to be following the king through the gospel of Mark. And we're going to discover what kind of king it is that we follow. I mean, you get the sense that that when you read Mark, maybe you read Mark 1 this this week, Mark can't wait to tell the story of Jesus. I mean, for Mark, an event has taken place that so radically changes everything, that so radically um, changes the way we look at and experience the world, that he can't help himself. He can't, you know, he can't wait to tell people about it. It's an event. It's good news, he says. And this good news is Jesus. And here's how Mark begins his gospel. He begins with Jesus' public ministry. 
He talks about Jesus being baptized. Then he talks about Jesus being tested in the wilderness. And then he, he shares how Jesus begins his public ministry with this declaration that the time has come. The kingdom of God is here. Repent and believe the good news. The kingdom of God is breaking through into human reality and into human existence. And the proper response to this kingdom breakthrough is to repent, to turn from our ways and to to receive his ways and to, to step out in faith on it, to believe in it. And then you see in Mark 1, you see Jesus calling some disciples to come follow him. And then he begins to teach people and he begins to heal people and he begins to cast out demons. And obviously this begins to draw a crowd. He begins to draw a crowd at one point in Mark, you know, chapter 1, verse 32, it says, the whole town gathered outside the house where Jesus was staying. You think about that. The whole town. Imagine if the whole town of Holland gathered outside your house. The whole town. And it says that when that happened, here's what Jesus did in Mark 1. He stayed up late healing people and driving out demons. Then this is what happened right after that. I'm just giving you some context for today's story. Right after that, the next morning, it says that Jesus got up early while everyone was still asleep. I mean, this is like it's still dark out early. He got up early, went off by himself, gets away, and prays. Right? This is a pattern. This is a pattern, look for it as we read through the Gospel of Mark. This is a pattern that we see in Jesus, not just in Mark, but throughout all the Gospels. It's this, the more tired and the more spent that Jesus is, the more he creates space and time to get with the Father and to abide with the Father and to pray to the Father and to receive from the Father. It's just his pattern. And it says that Peter goes out in the morning trying to find Jesus. He's not sure where Jesus is. And he finds Jesus and he tells them, all the people from the town that you were healing last night and that you were casting out demons from, they're still here. They're still here around the house. And Jesus looks at Peter, if you know the story, says, yeah, we're going to go somewhere else. We're going to go somewhere else. Jesus decides to go somewhere else. Obviously, this was clarity that Jesus received from prayer. Rather than please the crowd, rather than, you know, respond to the crowd's pressing needs, Jesus obeys the Father. That's always what Jesus does. He obeys the Father. They decide to go somewhere else, which sort of leads us up to today's story. If you have a Bible and you want to follow along, I'm going to be reading from Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And as I read chapters 1 and 2, you know, over the last couple weeks, just in preparation for this morning, I had no problem picking the story that I wanted to preach from this morning. Because that's what we're doing. As we read through two chapters a week, whoever's up here, Pete, Brendan, myself, we're just going to preach out of the overflow of what grabbed us out of you know, those two chapters. And for me, it was easy. It was, it was one of my favorite gospel stories of all time. It's the healing of the paralytic in Mark 2, verses 1 through 12. It's one of my favorite stories. So you can follow along in your Bible, on your Bible app, or I'll put it up here as well. I'm just going to read it from the screen. Just like Pam was talking at the very beginning. You know, sometimes familiar stories, like we gloss over them. Put yourself in this story afresh. Put yourself in this story afresh. Imagine you're there. Imagine you're in the crowd, okay? Experience this story. What are you, what are you, what are you seeing? What are you hearing? What are, you, what are the smells? You know, just immerse yourself into this story. 
It says a few days later, after all that, staying up late and then deciding, you know, okay, we're going to go over here. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Now some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it, and they lowered the mat that the man was laying on. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law, religious people, right, they were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven or to say, get up, take your mat and walk. But I want you to know, Jesus says, that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, go home. He got up, took his mat, walked out in full view of them all, and this amazed everyone. And they praised God saying, we have never seen anything like this. I love this story. I love this story. It speaks to me every time I encounter it. And it's almost like Mark sort of tells it just straightforward. And so, matter of fact. But imagine this moment. I mean, I was, I was even thinking this morning, like, maybe we could reenact this story. Like, like I'll stand here, you guys press in, and then, like, how's Dave Bender going to get to me? He'd have to crawl across the rafters and drop down. But that sounded dangerous, so I just thought we'd imagine it. The, the crowds are pressing in, right? The crowds are pressing in and around the house. You know, one commentator I read actually said that this might even be Jesus' house in Capernaum, like where he lived. So that puts a whole new perspective on somebody putting a hole in your roof, you know. So it, but the crowds are pressing in, in and around the house, not just inside the house, but all around the house, listening to Jesus teach. Imagine you're there when suddenly debris starts to fall from the ceiling. And a hole in the roof sort of begins to emerge. I mean, what would you do? Stuff starts falling down, you know, into the room. And this opening gets, gets bigger and bigger. And if you're like me, like, you'd be looking up. Like, what is going on? Everyone's looking up, and suddenly four guys are looking down. You know, you see, see can you imagine, like, four faces just kind of looking down? They're all sweaty and dirty, and they're, and they're looking down at you. Then they disappear. But then, like, this stretcher starts to fill up the opening, and they start to lower this stretcher down into the room. And you see that there's a man on the stretcher, and, it, and he stops kind of right at Jesus' feet. And immediately, you can tell something's wrong with this man. Something's wrong with this man. I don't know if he's, he's crippled or he's paralyzed, but you could tell something's wrong with this man. Can you imagine the expectation that is in the room 
at that moment as this crippled man lays at Jesus' feet? I mean, if you're like me, you're like, we're going to see a healing. Like, this is going to be great. I'm going to witness one because you hear, hear all these stories. Maybe you were parts of the crowd from before where Jesus is healing people and casting out demons. And now it's about to happen right in front of you. I mean, it's thick with anticipation. Just the expectation in the room. There's great drama. Everybody's quiet, kind of like maybe like right now. Everyone's really quiet. The man looks up at Jesus. Expectingly, hopefully, Jesus looks at the man. Jesus looks up at the hole and sees four faces, eagerly with anticipation, looking down. Jesus looks back at the man and he says this, your sins are forgiven. Come on, just that? That's it? I mean, wouldn't you like, that's not what I was expecting. That's not what the man was expecting. That's not what the friends were expecting. That's not what the crowd was expecting. That's it. The man can't walk. What you're expecting is Jesus to say something like, be healed. Stand up and walk. But instead, Jesus looks at the man He says, your sins are forgiven. Can you imagine being one of the four guys on the roof in that moment? Like, we did all this for that? We just carried that guy up a ladder? Broke a hole in the roof? Just so his sins can be forgiven? And how about the man? What an awkward moment for him, right? In this moment. He's got to be thinking, um, thanks. But can I draw your attention? Like, maybe... Look at my legs here. They're, they're, they can't move. You know, maybe that's kind of my more urgent need right here in this moment, Jesus. And you know what? I think Jesus is saying, no, it's not. No, it's not. I think Jesus is the only one in the house who truly understands what the man really needs. And what does he need? He needs what all of us need. He needs forgiveness. He needs reconciled, restored relationship with the heavenly father. Jesus is like, I know. Man, I I see you. I know you're physically suffering. I'm aware of it. But the main problem in this guy's life and in yours and mine isn't our physical suffering. It's our broken relationship with the father. Our physical suffering isn't our biggest problem. Our sin is. I mean, this guy's he's paralyzed. He can't walk. He wants to be healed. He thinks, his friends think, probably the crowd thinks, that's his greatest need, is to be healed, to be able to walk again. But Jesus knows better. And you know what? Jesus always knows better. Jesus knows that our primary need is not first our deliverance from our physical suffering, but deliverance from our sins. Jesus loves this man too much to just simply give him what he wants. Jesus says, first, let me deal with what you need. 
And, and I think there's a principle in there for all of us. And it's this. If you want to write it down, you can. I didn't put it on the screen, but it, it would go something like this. You can ask Jesus for what you want. You certainly can. But be prepared. He'll probably first give you what you need. You can ask him for what you want. It's okay. But be prepared. He'll probably first give you what you need. And what we need isn't usually the first thing that we want. What we need is Jesus. Jesus. What we want usually is everything else. <laughs> if only I had this or that, then I'd be set for life. When, when that happens, I'll be happy. If only I could do this, then everything would be all right. When I'm in a relationship, then it'll be good. When I have more money, a better job, success at work, you know, this degree, or even like the guy in this story, you know, if, if, if Jesus would just take care of this disease that I'm dealing with or this ailment that I have, then it will all be good. We think our deepest, we, we think that having our deepest wish fulfilled is what will heal us, will fix us, will even save us. Now, I want to be clear. I don't think it's wrong for the paralyzed man to want to walk. Jesus simply wants him to understand that being able to walk isn't what will ultimately fix him. That's not his greatest need. Right relationship with God is his greatest need. And Jesus always takes us deeper. He always does. Until, this is like our Consecrate series we just concluded, right? Until Jesus and Jesus alone is our deepest longing, we'll never get our identity right in our life. Our identity is not found in what we have, what we can do, where we live, whether, or even whether we can walk or not. That's how we see ourselves, but it's not how Jesus sees us. Did you catch Jesus' first word to him? I love that. Son. First word Jesus utters to this paralyzed man is one of identity. Son. You're my son, and I forgive you all your sins. That's who you and I are. We're a forgiven son or daughter of God. It's not about whether we can walk or not, what we have, what we don't have. It doesn't matter what you can do or can't do. What matters first and foremost is that we recognize that Jesus sees us as sons and daughters. And he offers us forgiveness. He's forgiven our sins. Can you hear Jesus speaking those words to you this morning? Son, daughter, your sins are forgiven. Isn't that our primary need? Now let me ask you this. Is that enough? If, if that's all Jesus ever gave you, would that be enough? Is being a forgiven son or daughter good enough for you? Is Jesus enough for me? I mean, if you were this man... I mean, think about this. This is powerful. If you were this man and you came to Jesus because you wanted to walk again and your friends convinced you it could happen and all Jesus did was forgive you your sins but didn't give you what you thought was your biggest need in your life right now and you had to be carried back out of that room on a stretcher but forgiven as a son or daughter of God, would that be enough? 
think we need to wrestle with that. But we're not going to stop there because there's good news. I mean, there's, there's good news in the story. Jesus has this way. And I'm not saying this is a, a formula, but it, but it seems like he has this way. When we get to that spot in our life when Jesus is enough, when, when we're centered on him and he's enough, he tends to choose to want to do more for us. He tends to choose to want to give us more. He's an abundant God. He's, a, he's an abundant king. It's a, it's a mighty king that we follow, full of compassion and grace and love. Though Jesus did indeed come first and foremost to deal with the primary consequence of sin, which is our spiritual separation from God, he also does care about other consequences of sin, like the, like the physical consequences of sin. And throughout Mark, and actually throughout all the Gospels, if you read them, Jesus frequently demonstrates authority over sin and brokenness, and he heals and restores people. And he fixes things. He makes broken things work again. And I just, I just want to close kind of towards that direction by making a really small but I think powerful observation from this story. And maybe you caught it as I was reading it. Maybe you caught it, you know, from before when you've hung out in this story. And I hope this is an observation that propels us into action this morning. Here's the question. Whose faith was Jesus responding to when he forgave the man and then ultimately healed the man? Let's go back to that It's in verse 5 of chapter 2. When Jesus saw their faith. Who's there? Four guys. The four buddies who carried this friend to Jesus in a time in his life when he couldn't get to Jesus. They had faith for him. They had faith on his behalf. These four buddies carried Jesus when, and they didn't, they didn't stop. When they couldn't get to Jesus, they found a way to get their friend to Jesus. They dug a hole in the roof. When Jesus saw their faith, he responded. I don't know how to explain it, but I believe it. That somehow, some way, in some mysterious way, our faith on behalf of others propels Jesus into action. Our faith leveraged towards others can unlock things in the kingdom of heaven. Influences God's actions. Man, I want those kinds of friends. I'm grateful for those kinds of friends in my life who leverage their faith on my behalf. And I want to be that kind of friend to other people who influences the Lord on their behalf. Friends who don't take no for an answer from God and who stop at nothing to get me to Jesus. Because here's the deal. Jesus always responds to faith. He always responds to faith. And when we don't have enough faith on our own, he sometimes responds to the faith of those around us on our behalf and for us. You can read the Gospels. Jesus always responds to faith. He does. One of my favorite stories, too, and we were talking about this week, Pete and Brendan and I, like, I think it's Matthew 15. I didn't write it, write it down, but I think it's Matthew 15. 
And there's this Gentile woman, so a non-Jewish woman, who comes to Jesus and asks for help because her daughter is demon-possessed. And she's heard about Jesus, and she's asking if Jesus can help. When she brings this request to Jesus, Jesus does nothing. He says nothing. And eventually the disciples like, encourage Jesus, like, send her away. She's bugging us. And finally, Jesus says to the woman, look, woman, I've come for the lost sheep of Israel. You know, I've come for the Jews. And it's like, like she goes away, but then you get this sense, she comes back and, and she, she, worship, she worships Jesus, it says. She worships him and says, yes, Lord, but, but even the dogs under the table, you know, eat the scraps that fall down. She's making a point. And, and Jesus says, I've never, like your faith, like I, I haven't seen faith, like your faith, um, because of your faith, your daughter's healed. You know, your daughter's freed. Your daughter's delivered. I mean, Jesus responds to faith and he responds to us like bugging them. You know, going at it. Like, like, like really like pressing in. And I want to I bring that home this morning with, with sort of an invitation and a challenge. I mean, I want you to, to think about that question. Who is someone right now in your life that Jesus is maybe prompting you, the Holy Spirit maybe is prompting you to, to carry to Jesus? I mean, just dwell on that for a second. Just take a minute. Maybe, it, you know, I'd even encourage you to write it down if, if something comes to mind, but who is someone in your life right now, maybe it's a family member, maybe it's a friend, maybe it's a, a, a co-worker, someone at school, you know, you walk the halls with or sit in the lunchroom with on your team. Who is someone right now that, that maybe the Spirit is bringing to your attention that, that is someone that you could carry to Jesus today? And maybe it's, you know, maybe it's physical healing. Maybe it's someone who's just dealing with a chronic disease or illness and you're just praying for breakthrough. Or, or maybe it's someone who doesn't know Jesus, doesn't know that their sins can be forgiven. Maybe it's like that. Maybe it's a, it's, it's a relationship thing. But just, is there anybody that God puts on your heart today, this morning? Maybe it'll happen beyond this morning. Like it's someone that you could be one of those friends to that you could like pick up the stretcher and carry that person to Jesus. And I want to give you a real practical way to think about doing that. And I think it ties in nicely with this season of Lent that, that we're beginning right now. I want to encourage you to consider during Lent maybe fasting. Now, it's not something we talk about a lot. It's not something that we do a lot in our tradition, but it sure is biblical, it sure is a biblical concept. I mean, fasting is consistently portrayed in the scriptures as one of the primary ways that we can seek God and those blessings that he's promised to us if only we would ask. I mean, fasting is spiritual seeking. I, I like this. I came across this, this phrase. Fasting is spiritually seeking. Fasting is asking with extraordinary intensity and passion. So here's what it could look like. Let me give you a practical example. We, we talked about this as a staff this week and have decided we're going to step into this. And I'm almost hesitant to share it as an example because when Jesus talks about fasting and teaches about fasting, 
He says, like, don't draw attention to it. This is a private discipline, a secret thing that you do. You know, don't be like, you know, the religious leaders who, like, put on sackcloths and draw attention to themselves. Like, hey, I'm fasting. I mean, that's not the spirit of fasting. You know, look normal, act normal, be normal. Um, But just to give you an example, though, we, we were talking about this as a staff this week. That, you know, there are people in our lives, there are people in this family, this spiritual family, that we're praying for breakthrough. You know, there's certain people that each of us know. Maybe it's a physical thing. You know, maybe it's a spiritual thing. Maybe it's an emotional thing. Like, we're just praying for breakthrough. And, and, and we're not going to stop praying. But what if we added fasting to it? Okay? What, what if we, we upped our game? Because Jesus does seem to, you know, say sometimes, like, well, you know, like, this kind only comes out through prayer and fasting. Or this, I mean, there's something about fasting that can unlock and get God's attention, I think, in a way that just simple prayers, you know, it just adds power to them. And so what we decided to do is, um, and we're all going to do it differently. You know, this is about grace, not the law. Um, but we, we decided, like, throughout the season of Lent, for a 24-hour period each week, we're going to engage in fasting. And, and for us, what we decided is, you know, beginning with our Wednesday evening meal, we're not going to eat, and we'll eat again Thursday night, okay? And during that time, the time that we would usually spend eating, we're going to spend, like, seeking God with extraordinary intensity and passion. You know, so, like, if, if I usually spend 20 minutes, you know, eating breakfast, I'm going to use that time instead to, to just go after it in prayer on behalf of other people, to, to carry people to Jesus and put them at his feet and say, Jesus, give them what they need and what they want, okay? Like, and, and when throughout the day, you know, when, when the stomach grumbles, because it happens, okay? Sometimes it happens publicly. You just got to live with it, you know? Like, oh, that's a prompting. That's a reminder, you know? I'm going to fill my body not with food right now I'm going to fill it with the overflow of the Holy Spirit and I'm just going to pray I'm going to keep praying I'm just going to keep praying for people you know so we each identified who are some people we're going to who are some people we want to carry to Jesus and could fasting and prayer through Lent be a way we do that now you could choose to do it that way you could choose to do it a different way it's all about grace maybe for you it's not a food thing maybe that's just not a wise thing health wise you know but maybe it's social media you know, maybe it's TV. Maybe it's something that just takes time and attention that you're going to, like, say no to and instead say yes to this. You know, maybe it's not 24 hours of meal. Maybe it's like, I'm going to skip lunch every day or every Tuesday. You know, whatever it is. It, it's, not about, it's not about how much you do. It, it's about, like, um, choosing to, like, I, I'm going to do something intentionally to, to really tangibly, spiritually carry someone to Jesus and, and put them at Jesus' feet and leave the results up to him. Let him do what only he can do. Let him respond to what only he knows is needed. So I, I, just, I, I just offer that to you, I guess. You know, fasting, there's something about fasting. And if you've never done it, just start lightly. You know, um, there's some good resources out there we, we could maybe post this week that just kind of give you a fasting 101 but fasting sort of opens our ears and tunes us into the spirit in, in a fresh way in an intense way I would say in a focused way 
that sometimes we don't always experience when we're just going through our life. It sort of sensitizes our hearts to the things of God. And, and, and fasting, let's just be honest, it's a powerful weapon in spiritual warfare. I mean, in Mark 1, we glossed over this, but Jesus was tested in the wilderness, wasn't he? You know what he did in, in preparation for that testing? He fasted. He fasted for 40 days. I'm not inviting you to do that unless the Spirit's telling you to do that. But he fasted. Fasting prepares you to, to do battle. Fasting opens up and unlocks things even beyond what prayer does sometimes. It's this mysterious thing. And I just I invite you to just consider that, to join us in that, to, to maybe, who, who's God putting on your heart? Might be somebody from Victory Point, might be somebody outside of Victory Point. Who's someone God's putting on your heart? You don't have to tell anybody who it is. But what if you, what if a tangible way of bringing them to Jesus during the season of Lent is to set aside a period of time each week in fasting and prayer when you spiritually lower them through the roof and place them at Jesus' feet and ask him to do what only he can do? invite the band forward just take a minute consider what I just offered and see what God's saying to you and if he's putting somebody on your heart receive that right now okay receive that right now And as you keep listening and paying attention to what's God saying to you and what are you going to do about it in response, I just want to turn our attention to uh, this idea, you know, this whole idea of, of carrying someone to Jesus. And it makes me think a little bit appropriately about how we're going to end our gathering this morning with just a couple songs and celebrating communion together. I can't help but think of how Jesus chose to come and carry us back to the Father. And the way he chose to come carry us back to the Father is by carrying our sins on his back. And by placing our sins, you know, on the cross through his beaten and battered body. So that those words cannot just be the paralyzed man, but can be all of us. Son, daughter, your sins are forgiven. So it's appropriate. We're going to close this morning just with some worship and with some communion. I want to remind us of Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 11. And he says this. For what I received from the Lord, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread like this bread we have here. And we had given thanks. He broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, like these cups here. He said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this whenever you drink in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread, and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I'm going to invite our communion servers to come on forward.
And I'm just going to invite all of us this morning just to kind of conclude our time together in a deep, personal posture of worship. We're going to sing a few songs. And as we sing those songs, you are welcome and invited to celebrate Jesus' sacrifice through communion this morning. The way we do it at Victory Point is uh, we usually start in the front rows of each section, kind of leave to your left, come on forward. There will be someone with the bread and the juice. Just rip off a piece of bread, dip it in the juice, and then return to the right to your seat. So we're going to sing, we're going to receive communion, and we're going to remember the one who carried us back to the Father, taken our sins upon him so that we can have life eternally, abundantly forgiven. Let's stand, let's worship, and let's receive communion.